So as we begin this morning, we're beginning this session entitled The Quest for Assurance, and we're beginning with a walk uh, down one pathway of historical theology. That may not sound exciting to some of you, uh, but it is never less important because we are here as believers, as a church, as a denomination, uh, not just spontaneously. We, we did not arrive in a vacuum. We are the product of centuries of church history that has gone on before us all the way back to Christ and even his work based on what God had done in the previous centuries before that. So this morning, what we want to ask ourselves is essentially this question, how have God's people understood the doctrine of assurance for the last 2,000 years? Okay, And we're going to look at basically four big uh, chunks, or we're going to organize our thoughts that way. The first one is this, and when we look to the Bible, we see assurance given. We see assurance given. Uh, and we just very want, to, very want to very quickly look at the biblical evidence for the average believer having assurance. Specifically, we're going to ask this, when we look to the Bible, especially the New Testament, does God want His people to be assured of their salvation? Some don't believe that. But just looking at what is obvious, John wrote his first letter with that intent. In chapter 5, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So, so yes, God does want us to have assurance. I'm not going to spend uh, a lot of time making that argument because uh, the other brothers are going to unwind one of these things. But what I want to do is basically give you three ways to think about salvation or three ways that the Bible presents our salvation that should cause us to have assurance. Okay, so, so the first thing the Bible says is when we are saved, we have new life. We have new life. This is a broad description that I'm using of several images in the New Testament. The Bible teaches that those who put their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins are moved from, from one realm to another. Okay, so, so, so you were over here in this realm, you were saved, and now you're over here in this other realm. So consider some verses, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So death to life, old creation to new creation. We are saved, and a fundamental change has taken place. Colossians 1, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 10.10, by God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So again, something changes when we trust God. Christ, we move out of the world and become citizens of His kingdom. Moreover, in Hebrews 10, the sanctification that's talked about there is not what we typically think of as us progressively growing in our holiness, but rather a one-time event that God does whereby He scoops us up out of the world and says, now you are set apart for me and my glory and service to me. So, so the Bible presents salvation as bringing something new, new life, moving us from one realm of existence to another. Second of all, the Bible talks about our salvation in terms of divine protection. Divine protection. 
God saves His people and keeps secure that salvation. It wasn't our work to gain, and therefore it's not our work to lose. So, and, and no other spiritual power can threaten our security in Christ. So consider some verses here. John 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Ephesians chapter 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is a down payment of what is to come, a non-refundable down payment. 1 Peter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Well, well what is waiting for us cannot be taken, but maybe we're not going to get there. No, the next verse, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. So, so God is keeping His people safe. He is preserving them, upholding them, making them to be able to persevere till the end. So we thought about this picture of new life. We thought about this picture of divine protection. The last thing I want to think about in terms of the New Testament is the picture of spiritual fruit. When we have new life in Christ, something should be visible from that change. Something will be visible from that change. There is evidence that we are saved. John 15, 8 says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So, fruit bearing is proof that we are indeed God's people, that we have been saved in Christ, kept safe by the Father's hand, and sealed by His Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. Paul, how can you know that? That's a divine mystery. How can you know that he has chosen the Thessalonians? Well, among other things, verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Paul, in part, could have confidence in the salvation of the Thessalonians because he saw a change in their lives. So there's much more that we could say about the biblical teaching of assurance, and again, the other brothers are going to deal with a lot of that today. But now we need to move on from the New Testament authors and this given assurance that they provide to the early church fathers. We now begin to move out of the New Testament period, although there's actually a little bit of overlap, and look at these early church fathers as we think about the historical quest for assurance of salvation. What we see here is assurance assumed. Assurance assumed. Now, for most evangelicals, the church fathers are a bit like the American West in the late 1800s. We romanticize them, we consider them majestic and glorious, but somewhat rough and frightening. We appreciate the fathers, yet most of us have no plans to read them because we are intimidated by them. We know they exist, we've heard snippets, but we're unsure what really lies in those writings. And I would say if we're honest, some of you may even feel like what you read there is going to scare you because it's not going to match up quite with what we believe today. 
So I can't correct all that this morning. We just don't have time. That's a whole other conference, right? But to, to equip you, if you want to go further, I recommend two books. They're both listed in the notes there. Rediscovering the Church Fathers by Michael Haken and For Us and For Our Salvation by Stephen Nichols. They are a great place to get your toes wet in the, in the early Church Fathers. But for our purposes this morning, we want to think about the context in which the Fathers are writing, okay? And, and if you don't know, if you're unfamiliar, we're talking about approximately the first four or five hundred years of church history after the apostles, okay? When we talk about the early church fathers. For them, the theological and the ecclesiastical landscape looked very different than it does today. Government and church were slowly being intertwined. Early Roman oppression gave way to official approval of the Christian religion, and this brought a massive influx of false confessors who wanted to be part of Emperor Constantine's new groove. So before, Christianity was on the ropes, and after that, it was fighting for purity. And so much of the writings we have in those church fathers is apologetic in nature. They can be seen clarifying biblical doctrine, especially Christology, fighting off heretical leaders, defending the faith against pagan detractors. This means that some of the issues that we think about in 2020 are not the kinds of things that they're thinking about back then in A.D. 100, 300, 500. The fathers also may not speak about our issues which, with much depth. Sometimes they don't think about them at all. Other times they are fighting a specific kind of fight looking at an issue of doctrine. And therefore... They're not looking at the angle that we're looking at. They're emphasizing something totally different. So we're going back looking for one thing, and we're not going to find it because they're thinking about this other part of it over here. And this is especially true when we go looking for instruction on Christian assurance. The fathers did not spend much time defending the doctrine of assurance because it was often assumed to be a reality for the believer. And when it was talked about, it was tied to an encouragement to and the necessity of faithful Christian living. So much of the fathers is writing at a time when there's a bunch of people that culturally are believers but not really believers, and they're trying to strive to say that's not enough, that's not what real faith looks like. So they're not going to give false assurance to those kinds of people. Nevertheless, while while they are not as clear as we would like them to be, we do see the basic assumption of the permanence of salvation and therefore an assurance that every believer should have. And one of the earliest examples we see is from the epistle of Barnabas. This is written somewhere between A.D. 70 and 132. We know that's a a big swath there, Um, but he's talking about the things of the temple in the past tense, so we know the temple is destroyed. That happened in A.D. 70. That's the reason why we have that start date there. The writer is drawing out the symbolism of everything that used to happen in the temple, and specifically in chapter 8, he's talking about the symbol of the red heifer, which points to the sacrifice of Christ. And here's what he says. Then there is placing the wool on the tree. This means that the kingdom of Jesus is on the tree, that is the cross, and that they who set their hope on him shall live forever. So it's not set our hope on him and, and maybe we'll be okay. No, because... Because it rests on the cross, those that set their hope on Him receive eternal life. That They don't need to worry. Their salvation is forever. 
Then in AD 110, we see Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, who for reasons that we don't know, they're lost to history to us, was arrested, sent to Rome, and ultimately thrown to the lions to be killed. While on the way, however, he wrote seven letters to churches encouraging them, or at least seeking to, before his impending death. And he opens his letter to the Ephesians like this. Ignatius, who was also called Theophorus, the church at Ephesus in Asia, blessed with greatness through the fullness of God the Father, predestined before the ages for lasting and unchangeable glory, united and elect through genuine suffering by the will of the Father and of Jesus Christ our God. Ignatius' letters are actually really fun to read devotionally. Uh, you may not agree with everything that's in there or the emphasis he placed, but by and large, they are edifying. And here, you can see that what he is saying just in his greeting echoes with great uh, clarity what Paul would talk about later in Romans 8. Namely, if you get on the train of salvation which began in eternity past, you don't get off until the last stop. Glory with the Father. Athanasius, writing in AD 350, picked up on the idea of the permanence of the Spirit to speak about how God's people might be one with Him as a way to emphasize the deity of Jesus. In other words, what I'm, what I'm, that sounds a little awkward, but let, me, let me rephrase it this way. Athanasius is trying to prove the deity of Jesus. And in seeking to do so, he makes an argument based on the believer's permanent reception of God the Holy Spirit. So, so here's, he's, he's talking about John 17, 22. Listen to what he says here. That phrase, as we are one, meaning Jesus, if you remember the context, is talking and saying, or actually he's praying, and he says, I want the believers to be one as you and I are one, Father. Okay? That phrase, as we are one, means nothing else than that the grace of the Spirit which the disciples had might be never failing and irrevocable. For as I said before, what Jesus the Word had by nature to be in the Father, He desires might be irrevocably given us by the Spirit, which the Apostle knowing said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For the gifts of God and the, calling, and the grace of calling are without repentance. So Jesus wanted his followers to be one with him just as he and the Father were together. He wants them to be united. And so to accomplish this, he gave them fellowship with the Holy Spirit just as he has a gift which comes from the Father, which he will never repent of forgiving, meaning he will never change his mind about. He will say, you know what? I don't want them to have the Father. I mean, I don't want them to have the Spirit, rather. I'm taking it away. Athanasius says, no, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. It is, it is never failing and irrevocable. He is with us forever. If the Spirit of God is with us forever, then what does that mean? We can have assurance of our salvation even until the last day. Just a few decades later, among many sermons, Ambrose in 380 had a sermon on Psalm 119, and there he made clear that our perseverance in the faith is not something that rests in us or on us, but is wholly dependent upon God. Specifically, he says, it is not in our power, but only in God's mercy that we can continue in the faith. Therefore, our assurance 
is not rooted on our moment-to-moment faithfulness, which waxes and wanes all the time, but rather our assurance rests on God and His power and His mercy. So this was the assumption of assurance that's in the church fathers. No one sits down and writes a systematic treatment of the doctrine of assurance. But, that, but it's there in the background, even as the basis for other things that they want to be talking about. However, however, even as modern church history has shown us, like the last hundred years, if you assume something and do not actively advocate for it, then the ensuing generations will likely lose it. And that's exactly what we see playing out. And this moves us to our third section of church history, and that is assurance lost. Assurance lost. When we think about the average Christian who does not have assurance, particularly in some other denominations, historically, that loss of assurance begins with Augustine's blind spot. Augustine's blind spot. For many, Augustine is a theological hero. He helped systematically explain many foundational doctrines that would later become Uh, the basis for the Reformation in our beliefs today, and yet he was part of the thinking of his day as well. And in his day, there was an increasing importance given to the church for the salvation of individuals. And this ultimately led Augustine to be hesitant to provide objective assurance of salvation. He said that our our subjective experience, so what do I feel right? It gets me in the feels. He says that that's inconsequential. That could deceive us, and it may not be a true sign of faith. Rather, it was continued participation in the sacraments and worship of the church that would give reasonable evidence of our ongoing faith and reception of persevering grace. But even that was not enough to provide assurance for the long term. So in his work, A Treatise on Rebuke and Grace, he said, Perseverance is God's gift to the elect. But at the same time, no one can know they are part of God's elect, that God has predestined them to be saved on the last day. Therefore, he says, for who of the multitude of believers can presume, so long as he is living in this mortal state, that he is in the number of the predestinated? Because it is necessary that in this condition that we should be kept hidden, since here we have to beware so much of pride. So Augustine says, because we have to be humble before God, God is not going to give us assurance that we are part of his elect. Therefore, we can have a reasonable comfort as long as we continue to participate in the religious acts of the church, partaking of the sacraments and other things, but... We cannot have a final assurance that we will persevere till the end. That incongruity of Augustine's theology worsened over time, particularly through the medieval period, and ultimately led to the church's decree. The church's decree. As time went on, the formal teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, which again grew out later from this period in the next few hundred years, said assurance specifically was not possible. 
the official doctrine of the church, so that no one can be assured of heaven in this life apart from direct revelation from God, which is rare, so don't even think about it. We can only be assured by those canonized as saints by the church and therefore assured that they are in heaven. Any other confidence of a place in heaven was considered errant presumption. And in fact, that was one of the charges against Joan of Arc at her trial in 1431. You can go online and you can just read this litany of things that they had against her. I mean, page after page after page. And one of them says this, this woman sins when she says she is as certain of being received into paradise as if she were already a partaker of that blessed glory, seeing that on this earthly journey no pilgrim knows if he is worthy of glory or of punishment, which the sovereign judge alone can tell. Do do you catch all the problems that exist in that charge? She's not. She can't be. She can't know if she's. Matter of fact, she's not already a partaker of that blessed glory. But is that is that lined up with what Jesus said? That we already are partakers of eternal life when we believe. That we are already part of the new creation that is coming. But they say, no, no, no. You can't see that. Why? Because you cannot know if you are worthy of what. Friends, none of us are worthy. None of us are worthy. So we have to ask ourselves, between Augustine and 1430, where did this teaching come from? It came from a muddled understanding of the gospel over those ensuing centuries. With the influence of Pelagianism, which overemphasized the role of humanity in salvation to to the pushing out of God and His sovereignty and grace together with the necessity of the church for salvation, this together created the belief that salvation was by grace through faith that was exercised through certain religious acts. In other words, Christ accomplished salvation, but that salvation is applied to humanity through the liturgy and the sacraments of the church administered by His priestly successors. So the guy apparently on the beach, who finds the Bible, cannot open it, read, believe, and be saved. Because there's no priest to administer sacraments by which grace comes into their life, by which salvation is applied. In essence, the church confused justification and sanctification. They believed God couldn't justify a sinner while he is a sinner. And sinner needed to be made holy before God justified him. So, grace became something infused into the life of the believer. God's grace through the sacraments come into the believer's life and make them holy. And once that process is complete, then they experience justification before God. And yet, all of our sinful acts offset that justifying grace that comes into our life. Therefore, no one can know with any certainty whether or not they are saved because even certain mortal acts negate justification altogether. Commit suicide, and it doesn't matter what life you've lived, you're you're gone. You have no hope of salvation. You immediately go to hell. 
Later, the Council of Trent would declare, quote, No one can know with a certitude of faith, which cannot be subject to error, that he has obtained God's grace. So, under the Roman Catholic Church at this period, no one can have assurance of salvation. You can have a general disposition of certainty of God's goodness to save, but you can never be certain that you are the one who has received that salvation. Well, this leads us to our last section, assurance regained. Assurance regained. Although Martin Luther was not the the only or the first person to see the gospel more clearly than the official church doctrine, nevertheless, it was his hammer strikes in 1517 that God used to set the the Reformation uh, in motion in full. And what paved the way was to restoring assurance to the church was gospel clarity. Gospel clarity. That is really the heart and significance of the Reformation. The barnacles of tradition and bad thinking were stripped away as men and women began returning to the sources, namely the scriptures and the early church fathers. Because they felt like that that gave them validation for their beliefs. They would open the Bible. They would say, this is what I think the Bible says. Has anybody else believed that? And they would go to the church fathers and say, yes, look at this. Salvation by grace through faith alone. This is in the fathers. As you probably know, Luther was driven almost insane by his efforts to be holy before God. And yet all he saw in himself was sin, sin, and more sin. He would literally spend hours as a monk in the monastery confessing every possible sin he could imagine. I mean, one time, three hours, he's in there. And he leaves, and he would say, for for a moment, I felt wonderful. I I felt joyous. I felt happy because now I'm holy before God. And before he got back to his room, he would remember a sin that he failed to confess. And he realized, I'm not holy before God. I mean, if, if you were that concerned, would that not drive you insane? He's making his way through Romans. He comes to verse 17 and that phrase, the righteousness of God, and he says, I hated that word because I wasn't righteous. I didn't know how to be righteous. And so I felt condemned by that word. And yet he said, I was committed to know the truth of God's word, so I persevered in my study. He goes on to say, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Anybody familiar with that idea, the context? Namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is said, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God. Namely, by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive or the alien righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt like I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Now, now the biblical meaning of justification was clear. It was not a righteousness that was infused to the believer to make them holy. Rather, it was the righteousness of Christ imputed to the believer, whereby God makes the legal declaration, not a transformative 
process, but the legal declaration, not by our works, but by Christ's work, that we are righteous before Him. That we are righteous before God through faith, not by what we do. The implications of that teaching for the church was staggering. But we're an assurance conference, so I have to limit my remarks. What did it mean for assurance? It meant one could now look outside themselves with confidence that God loved them and would save them on the final day. Assurance for the Christian believer was regained. Luther writes, We must daily more and more endeavor to destroy at the root that pernicious error that man cannot know whether or not he is in a state of grace by which the whole world is seduced. If we doubt God's grace and do not believe that God is well-pleasing us for Christ's sake, then we are denying that Christ has redeemed us. Indeed, we question outright all His benefits. The recovery of Christian assurance is in part what caused the Reformation to explode across Europe. For centuries, Rome had taught no one could be certain that they are saved. And imagine going your entire life being told this is what everybody has always believed about the gospel, about Christ, about the church, that you cannot know your salvation, that at any moment your sin, what you do can threaten whether or not you're going to be in heaven or whether you're going to burn forever in hell. And suddenly, suddenly someone says, this is not what the creed says. This is not what the priest says. This is not what the Pope says. This is what Christ in His Word says. The righteous shall live by faith. It is not what you do, but what Christ was done. And you can be assured that that will be effective for you on the last day. You can just imagine the burden that was lifted in the minds and hearts of people. It is not surprising that a few generations before Westminster, which Uh, all the Westminster standards, which were very concerned to to have precise language and and, and, and a more systematic view of things. The Heidelberg Catechism came out with a much more pastoral focus. Think about about this as the first question. What Westminster has, what is the chief end of man, right? What is your purpose in life? That's a good question. But, But I will admit my bias and say I like Heidelberg better. Question one. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. This clarity of the gospel led to assurance. And that assurance was marked by scriptural balance. Scriptural balance. Neither Luther nor the other reformers nor their descendants ever wanted to make assurance. What we see in things like the free grace movement or the more informal 
easy believism of the modern day. None of them would have said, you have assurance simply because you said a prayer, you walked an aisle, or because you think that you are saved. Luther said, this inner assurance of the grace of God is accompanied by outward indication, indications, such as gladly to hear, preach, praise, and to confess Christ, to do one's duty in the station in which God has placed us, to aid the needy, and to comfort the sorrowing. These are the affidavits of the Holy Spirit testifying to our favorable standing with God. And this, this teaching of the reformers about assurance and the balanced way that they believe the Bible taught about it was solidified in the canons of Dort. This was the product of an international synod or conference in the Netherlands uh, between 1618 and 1619. And their teaching on assurance has persisted throughout the Reformed community and many other churches, even though uh, they may not know its origin, up till today. Dort made a point of saying that believers will sin. You, you are, uh, the Bible teaches that. As a believer, you're going to sin. And that sin can cause you to doubt your salvation. But that doubting doesn't mean that you've lost it. You can still be assured. Not because you receive a direct revelation from God that you are saved, but instead in three ways. Assurance comes from faith in the promises of God, especially the gospel. Assurance comes from the testimony of the Holy Spirit testifying to our spirits that we are the children of God. And third, assurance comes from a serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. In other words, believers find assurance in the promises of God, the witness of the Spirit, and the evidence of Christ's grace in our lives. There is thus a balance between the bedrock assurances given in the gospel and the fruit that flows from one's belief in those promises, which endorses the validity of one's profession of faith. Yet, and, and the, the point there is because anybody can say, well, sure, I trust Christ, I trust Christ. We were talking before this conference started. You've got people in other religions, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, I, I'm trusting in Jesus. Yeah, but it's a different Jesus, right? So, it, so it's not just, well, I, I believe in those promises. Yeah, so I'm saved. No, 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 wait a minute. What, 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 what else is going on in your life? And yet, Dort and the other reformers are quick to say, that fruit that, that comes from true faith or the lack thereof should never impinge on the foundation of God's promise for assurance. John Calvin writes in the Institutes, Faith totters if it pays attention to works, since no one, even the most holy, will find there anything on which to rely. So, so the Reformers, Dort, all, everybody else says, says listen, we, we have this balanced understanding of assurance, but... Don't get off in the weeds thinking about, well, look at, my, look at my fruit, look at my fruit, look at my fruit. It's not there. It's not there. I'm not saved. I did something bad. I've lost it. No, 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 no. They said, what is the foundation? It's God's promise in the gospel. It's what Christ has done. Remember that. Remember that. Remember that. If one struggles with assurance, we ought not think they lack true saving faith. Nevertheless, we should have assurance. God wants us to have assurance. And when we do have assurance... That will become for us a motivation to live and serve in ways which produce fruit, which furthers our assurance. Dort says that when we are certain of Christ's undying love, it produces a much greater concern to observe carefully the way of the Lord which He prepared in advance. Now, of course, not everyone agreed with the Reformers. The Catholic Church still condemns 
anyone who would have assurance as being pridefully in error. John Wesley, who owed his existence to the Reformers, yet rejected much of what they taught, so that one believe, rather, that, uh, that one could trust God with salvation, but ever only be assured at the present moment, never of the future. So you can know right here, right now, I'm saved. But that did not extend to the future to say, well, well, God is going to save me on the last day. It was only an assurance right here, right now, because of my fruit, that I can believe that, that God loves me. Ironically, those of the new perspective on Paul camp which came out of the Reformed tradition, have much more in line with Arminians here. Because of their redefinition of justification, they have weakened the believer's ability to have assurance. Simply put, they would teach we are saved by grace, but remain saved by works. That's not what the New Testament teaches. Many today make the same mistake and only look to their works as a means of assurance. And that can be a helpful check. If you've gone for a long time and there's no fruit... Maybe you should reevaluate whether or not you're saved. But if we begin to scope in and just say over this week, over this month, uh, that's, not a, that's not a good way to approach it. Instead, we go back to the foundation stone and ask, what do I believe about Christ? And so we would, I would at least, agree with Luther who wrote the following in a letter to his friend Jerome Weller who was struggling with uncertainty and spiritual despair. There's a lot longer part, but towards the end, this is what he says. When the devil throws our sin up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means, for I know one who suffered and made a satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we're thankful for your work in our life. Father, we are thankful for the salvation that you've given to us. We're thankful that, the, that you've given us assurance that we are saved, not by looking inward, but by looking outward ultimately to Christ and what He has done. So that when we fail, when we are tempted, when we give in to sin, we need not fear the taunts of the devil. We need not fear somehow that you have stopped loving us. But rather we confess our sin, we turn away from it, and we live again for you, the Holy God. Father, we're thankful for Christ and we pray in His name. Amen.